Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to First Move. We begin with breaking news from Turkey. The Turkish Interior Minister says an earthquake has destroyed multiple buildings in Izmir and two other cities. The 7.0 magnitude tremor struck off the Aegean coast north of the Greek island of Samos. That's according to the U.S. Geological Survey. Let's get right to Arwa Damon, who is in Istanbul for us. Arwa, great to have you with us. What more do we know at this stage and any information yet about possible casualties too? Nothing yet on possible casualties, Julia, but this was quite a powerful uh, earthquake, even though it did happen out at sea and at a depth of about 11 miles, so 17 kilometers or so. But what we do know, at least initially, from the mayor of Izmir is that about 20 buildings um, were damaged or collapsed. We have seen some very dramatic images coming out uh, from the city of Izmir, especially from the two districts there that were hit the heaviest of buildings that just look like they collapsed upon themselves, pancaked upon themselves. Uh, Videos of people running out into the streets and also a very dramatic video of what appears to be a small tsunami in the area of uh, Seferi Hisar, which is slightly outside of the main city of Izmir itself. Now, we do also know, and this is, of course, very important, that emergency response teams are already on the site. They were deployed very quickly. Turkey is actually, and perhaps uh, thankfully so for those that are impacted by this, adept at dealing with these kinds of natural disasters. They have emergency teams uh, that are stationed regularly throughout the country. Turkey is, of course, uh, a very earthquake-prone nation and has been through significant uh, earthquakes in the past, as well as on a fairly regular basis, uh, smaller scale ones. And, you know, many people... uh, who live along the the quake's main fault lines do tend to ready themselves for you know what what everyone calls you know the big one that is coming but in that readiness you also do have yes these teams that are stationed in very critical uh, areas but this quake was felt for quite a distance not just uh, in Turkey but also on a number of Greek islands of course this part of the Turkish coast uh, is very close to a number of Greek islands and as far as in the city of Athens itself. Uh, people were talking about the, you know, the, the shaking, the way that buildings were just shaking, even half an hour uh, drive away. People felt buildings shaking. Um, my parents happened to live down there about 40 minutes uh, away from the city of Izmir itself. They spoke about how their house was shaking. They were watching waves coming up and splashing um, outside of the pool. They're, they're fine, but it just shows you the force uh, of this earthquake. And of course, we're all waiting 
waiting uh, to hear any more information about what casualties may have occurred, who may uh, be trapped underneath the rubble as these emergency teams um, continue to dig through and begin to try to evacuate people that um, were injured, people who they're trying to to rescue. But again, you know, Turkey is, especially compared to other countries, very well equipped at dealing with these kinds of disasters. Yes, uh, no shortage of uh, quakes in this region, certainly, and um, preparedness, of course, but no less frightening when it happens. Arwa Damon, thank you so much for uh, bringing that to us. And uh, of course, we'll keep you updated as we get more news from Turkey and as that story develops. For now, we're just four days away from a pivotal U.S. presidential election, a vote that will determine not only the future path of the United States, but also America's political and economic relationships with nations all over the world. Records are being set as we speak and uncertainty being created in the process. Let me walk you through this. A record-breaking 81 million Americans have already voted, millions of them doing so via mail, raising questions, of course, about just how swiftly those votes can be counted. At the same time, record daily COVID infections reported here in the United States too. Almost 90,000 people, in fact, on Thursday and almost 1,000 additional deaths. So it's political uncertainty, it's pandemic uncertainty, combined today too with tech stock weakness that is dragging us lower by more than half a percent pre-market. Asia also took a beating earlier. The majors there losing some one and a half percent or more. European bourses pretty mixed today too, but markets there remain at five month lows. Why? Well, fears of a double dip recession, I think, dominating the debate in Europe. We got solid third quarter growth numbers from Germany, Italy and France earlier. But of course, that data, as with the United States, now feels pretty dated as COVID cases soar. And as far as Europe's concerned, lockdown measures are enacted. The European Central Bank hinting yesterday that they are ready to do more to help. Mohamed Alirian, if you're a member of Allianz, warned us yesterday that the markets have simply not priced in all the risks we face and therefore remain vulnerable to shocks. Top of the list right now, of course, political risk. It's all about Tuesday's vote. Let's get to the drivers right now. Is a tense time in Washington and across the United States. There are just four days left for Americans to vote and choose the leader to take them forward for the next four years. Will it be a second term for President Donald Trump or a new administration under former Vice President Joe Biden? Both candidates are holding last-minute rallies across the country with the focus on the crucial Midwest swing states, as Jeff Sennelly reports. President Trump and Joe Biden crossing paths in Florida. We are going to win Florida. We are going to win four more years. It's up to you. You hold the key. If Florida goes blue, it's over. It's over. The dueling rallies speak volumes about their markedly different view of the rising coronavirus crisis. The president bragging about his crowds. There's a lot of people. Look where that crowd is. The former vice president seizing on them too but to draw a sharp distinction. President Trump's super spreader events and he's spreading more virus around the country. The home stretch of the race is consumed by the deepening crisis, with some of the most at-risk states also key campaign battlegrounds. Today, Trump is heading to Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. Biden to Iowa, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. The Midwest, a critical path in their quest to win 270 electoral votes. The president sending mixed signals on masks. 
If you get close, wear a mask. Always controversial. It's not controversial to me. You get close, you wear a mask. Social distance, uh, social distance. You know the bottom line, though? You're going to get better. You're going to get better. If I can get better, anybody can get better. But that's hardly the bottom line for most Americans, including more than 228,000 who have already died, a grim toll the president rarely acknowledges. Biden showcasing empathy. Over these past few months, there's been so much pain, so much suffering, so much loss in America. And pushing back at suggestions his proposed mask mandates and other steps would go too far. I'm not going to shut down the economy. I'm not going to shut down the country. I'm going to shut down the virus. The long campaign is heading into its final weekend with Democrats on offense, eyeing potential opportunities in Texas, where Senator Kamala Harris is visiting today. <laughs> As Republicans defend terrain they easily won four years ago. I need you to show one more time that Iowa is Trump country. In the final days of the race, all this campaigning may have diminishing returns. More than one third of all registered voters, 80 million Americans have already cast their ballots. But the weekend sprint is about ensuring high turnout among those who haven't. So former President Barack Obama is set to join Biden for the first time on the campaign trail Saturday in Detroit, while Trump is scheduled to barnstorm Pennsylvania. Jeff Zeleny reporting there. Remember, this is all about the race to 270 electoral votes. The tipping point will come from just a handful of what we call the battleground states. Harry Enton joins us now to discuss this. Harry, great to have you with us. Let's talk about the race to the presidency here. Can we narrow it down to, the, let's say, the six closest states that President Trump won in 2016? Where do we stand yeah, these are the states that matter the most, plus the second congressional district in Nebraska, because Nebraska has these weirdo rules where they allocate one electoral vote to the winner in each congressional district. And what do we see in the polling right now? What we see in all of those states is that Donald Trump is trailing. He won these states back in 2016, but he's trailing in all of them. Now, in Florida and North Carolina, it's close. It's within the margin of error. But if you add together Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, where Biden has leads of at least six points, you add those to the states that Hillary Clinton won in 2016, that gets Joe Biden to above 270 electoral votes. So at this point in my mind, he is the clear favorite heading into Tuesday. Okay, but there will be a lot of people listening to this going, you said the word polls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if we go back to 2016, these state polls specifically got it wrong. What happens if we introduce the amount of error that we saw in 2016 to the numbers that we're seeing now in 2020? What happens you then? Yeah, this I think is my favorite map, right? Let's just say that we recreate the errors and the polls were as off as they were in 2016. What happens? Well, if the polling errors are as wrong as in 2016, Joe Biden still wins. He would still wow. win. He'd have 335 electoral votes, well more than the 270 he needs to win. So I think if there's one point to take away from all of this is Donald Trump doesn't just need a repeat of the polling errors in 2016. He needs additional errors. He needs the polls to be off even more. Now, that's possible, but in my mind, it's not likely. And that's another key reason why Joe Biden is in the driver's seat, in my mind, at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's quite fascinating, isn't it? What about COVID? I mean, this is a critical issue for, for us, for ordinary Americans going to the polls right now. How important is rising COVID cases in these battleground states too? 
Yeah, I mean, look, if you unfortunately were to look at those battleground states, the six closest that Trump won in 2016, look at this. What you essentially see is that the coronavirus cases in all, I'm sorry, the 10 closest battleground states, we added some ones. And the most important one, perhaps, is Wisconsin, where the coronavirus cases really are climbing. And you just see it across the board. There's no escaping this if you're the campaigns, because the COVID cases are rising in all these key battleground states that Trump won in 2016. And how much of an impact do you expect that to have on voting? I mean, that's the bottom line here. Yeah, I mean, look, the more COVID is in the minds of voters, the more it's likely to help former Vice President Joe Biden. We know this from our last national CNN poll. You know, you were asked who is better able to handle the COVID-19 situation, the crisis. And Joe Biden was overwhelmingly favored over Donald Trump, 57 percent to 39 percent. And you see this over and over again in the polls. When it comes to COVID-19, more voters trust Joe Biden than trust Donald Trump. Do we have a precedent, though, where a candidate like Donald Trump's been lambasted for his handling on a big issue like this, but still manages to win the election? Yeah, I mean, look, Gallup has been asking, what's the most important problem? Which party do you trust most to handle the most important problem since 1948? And pretty much every single time the party that is trusted to handle the most important problem has won. You can see it across your screen, right? It's pretty much all of them. Only really in 1948 with Harry Truman, when pretty much all the polls were wrong anyway, was it the case that the party that wasn't picked to handle the most nation's most important top problem actually won. And obviously this year, the coronavirus is considered the nation's most important problem. So I would think given that and given that Biden is thought to be the best to handle coronavirus, he should be the favorite, which is exactly what the polls indicate. Yeah, we'll see. Harry Enton, great to have you with us. Uh, thank you for your wisdom and great to have you on the show. All right, CNN's special coverage, uh, election night in America, kicks off next Tuesday at 4 p.m. in New York. That's nine o'clock in London. Now, President Trump making a last minute pitch to voters in the key battleground state of Florida as he touts the third quarter GDP report claiming he's the best candidate to handle the economy. Do you see the number today? 33.1 GDP, the biggest in the history of our country by almost triple, right? Almost triple. I'm just waiting for the tumbleweed to pass before I uh, introduce you, uh, Christine. <laughs> OK, look, we talked about the data yesterday because it had just come out, but I was looking at the maths afterwards. We've recovered two thirds right. of the growth that we lost in the first half of this year. We've only recovered half of the jobs. Whoever takes on the presidency for the next four years has one heck of a job on the economy, but also one heck of a job containing the virus that's impacting the economy too. Absolutely. You know, the president, we knew he would take a victory lap over that number. I mean, he's been talking about how this would be a record number for weeks. It's not really a surprise since you had a record collapse right before it. What we've missed out on is the incremental growth we would have had without a pandemic. So the U.S. economy, no question, is far behind where it should be and where it would have been uh, without um, this pandemic. And now I keep saying, what have you done for me lately in terms of this economy? Because the third quarter, I saw consumer spending and consumer numbers were very good. There was financial aid flowing to American families and businesses, so they were able to to try to stay afloat and, or at least you know, tread water in, in many cases. But that financial aid is now gone and the pandemic is resurgent. So what is going to happen in the fourth quarter? That's the very big question, uh, big question in my mind. And I think that's one of the things that's really been bothering the stock market. 
Absolutely. The spending that's going to be required to get us back to perhaps where we should have been in, in economic terms as well. Yeah. And the stimulus talks, the financial aid talks, well and truly dead and buried. They, they are, and now, and now there's sort of the sniping back and forth. You know, you saw the, the Treasury Secretary send a letter to the House Speaker saying, you know, that she, she was not, it just, it, it almost felt like, it was one of my producers said this morning, I'm sorry, is this kindergarten? You know, this idea that American people need something so desperately, and businesses have been begging for some sort of clarity about when relief is coming, and you just have months and months of negotiations. Remember, the Democrats put $3.4 trillion on the table way back on May 15th. So it's not as if there wasn't a lot of time here to try to cover this ground and figure out what to do. We know that by the end of the year, there'll be unemployment benefits that will begin expiring and some of these rent moratoriums will will begin expiring. We know a lot of people are behind on on rent and on mortgages. So there's a moment happening here right now where the president's taking a victory lap for the 33.1 percent GDP growth. But the fourth quarter, I'm, I'm a little worried, uh, a little worried about here. And, you know, I'll tell you, the Trump supporters and people who have advised him would like him to stay on this third quarter economy message and would like him to stay on this uh, this idea that the economy is coming back better uh, better than we thought and, and that Biden is going to raise taxes, corporate taxes, and that could be uh, a coolant on the on the economy next year. But he's just not really staying on that message. And we know that his, his approval ratings are, are the best when it's about the economy. But the president, if you see him in these final days of campaigning, is really kind of all over the place here uh, and not really staying focused on on that message. And I wonder if he will over this weekend. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see. And uh, it's not kindergarten, it's politics, and it has been for months, and that's the heartbreaking thing. Christine, great to have you with us. Christine Romans. The European economy rebounded in the third quarter, up by a record 12% context, so once again key. This rise, same with the United States, comes after an unprecedented 11% contraction in the previous quarter. Jim Bitterman joins us now. Jim, and now we face lockdowns all across Europe. There's a real fear here that the debate turns to the risk of a double-dip recession. Exactly, and I think it's, it could be close to that, but we don't know for sure. We're going to know very shortly, though, if this, is, this fourth quarter rolls out. You're getting a look right now behind me of what the microeconomic situation is here in France, which went into lockdown last night. And you can see the businesses are closed, the theaters are closed, the restaurants are closed, uh, and nobody's on the street Friday afternoon on the Champs-Élysées. Uh, it's really unthinkable to sort of see the streets like this, but it's the same thing we went through in the lockdown in the spring. And France has been going through this same kind of roller coaster that you've seen all over Europe. That is to say, third quarter growth, fantastic. I mean, in France, it was 18.2%. That's the kind of thing Donald Trump would brag about. But you have to look at that year-on-year -year figure. It year-on-year, -year, the growth is minus 4.3. And it's the same in Germany, minus 4.2 in Germany. Uh, Germany is expecting in the fourth quarter to turn a little bit positive towards perhaps four-tenths of one percent uh, positive growth in the fourth quarter for Germany. But, you know, uh, all of this is going to depend on these lockdowns, how the pandemic goes, if uh, the virus uh, the infection rate goes up, the lockdown continues longer, and the economy suffers more. Julia? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Jim Bitterman, thank you so much for that. All right, still to come on First Move, phoning it in. Could mobile balloting be the way to expand voter access and security, of course, too? Early Uber investor Bradley Tusk believes it is. We'll be discussing. And Joe Biden's campaign blaming Facebook for hundreds of thousands of dollars in missing donations. Floor or fix? We'll dig into the allegations. It's coming up. Stay with us.
first move live from New York, where it's still looking like a lower open for U.S. stocks as we head into election week here in the United States, with new COVID cases also at record levels. Tech stocks, in fact, leading the decline after mixed results or the perception of them from some of the major fang names too. Apple set to take the biggest hit down by some 4% pre-market as iPhone revenues disappoint. Alphabet, as you can see, bucking the trend. It returned to revenue growth in the third quarter with ad sales leading the charge. Not many treats for U.S. investors this October, though. The Dow on track for a 4% drop after a weak September. The S&P set to drop for the second straight month, too. Phil Camparelli joins us now. He's the Managing Director of Multi-Asset Solutions at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Phil, great to have you on the show. I do like to talk about the medium to long term, but I feel like we can't avoid the short term. What should right. investors and those watching the markets expect over the next week, two weeks? We'll see. Yeah, Billy, it's a great question. Good morning, and it's good to be with you uh, again. Listen, there's no, there's no model for this, right? I mean, we just came off our best GDP quarter we've ever had in history, which is, of course, preceded by the worst quarter we've ever had in history. And Julia, I think Wednesday was a little bit concerning for investors. Um, since 1990, there have been only three instances where the stock market has dropped by 3.5%, and you've got no protection in either rates or gold, right? So this is uncharted territory. But what I would expect over the next week or so is that our view of growth will be resilient enough and it will outlast both the politics and the pandemic. And just one thing to keep in mind, I know you mentioned over the next week and, and, and it's really hard to tell what's gonna happen over the next, next few days. But there have been 10 elections since 1980 and in eight out of those 10 elections, the market has been higher 12 months after that. The only two exceptions mm-hmm. were 1980 when the Fed was tightening like crazy because of inflation and then 2000 with the dot-com bubble. So, you know, financial conditions matter. I think credit especially, Julia, I feel like high-yield credit is voting for both Biden and Trump in this election. There's just less that needs to go right. So even if you have little or, you know, a small amount of growth or a lot of growth, credit makes sense for us right now, Julia, which is different from kind of the the volatility that you're mentioning in the equity markets. But you also said there's no protection in bonds and there's no protection in gold. Explain what you mean by that, because I think for some people watching this, they're like, what do you mean? In in a risky environment, you would go into safe havens like gold, like bonds. Yeah. Yeah, good question, Julia. So, uh, you know, you mentioned September. Markets were down 5 to 7% in September. The 10-year Treasury went into September at 66 basis points, came out of September at 66 basis points. So usually what happens is if you have a risk-off event, you're supposed to be protected in government bonds. And to some extent, that's still true because they're not going down. But the problem is you're starting at such low levels of rates. So unless you have a view... That, the, that rates are gonna move much, much lower and into negative territory, which we don't have, it's harder to get protected with government bonds. But that doesn't mean that you can't be protected in fixed income. So those same credit markets in September that I was mentioning, some of those credit markets were positive in September. So we're kind of using the investment grade corporate bond market as the proxy for treasuries Because, of course, the Federal Reserve announced that they're in that market buying those bonds, Julia. So, yes, we've never had rates this low. We've never had, you know, um, you know, the amount less protection than we do now in treasuries. However, we have a corporate bond market that we believe is very strong and able to provide a ballast to portfolios, which is different than either rates or gold. 
It's such a great question. So just finally, I think for investors at this moment, yeah. to the first point that you made, which is so important, hang on to your hats, buckle yourself in in the short term and remember that yeah. by and large, 12 months out is a very different story to what we see in the short term amid a lot of noise. Yeah, of course, and, and financial conditions matter. The, the, you know, the, we're not we're not voting for the Federal Reserve next week. <laughs> Those conditions are going to remain in place, Julian. So, still a support backdrop. Yes, we're not voting for the Federal Reserve. Thank goodness for Jay Powell. That's all I can say. Yes. <laughs> Paul Camborelli, great to have you with us, sir. Thank you so much. The Managing Thanks, Director Jill. of Multi-Asset Solutions at JP Morgan Asset Management. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. U.S. stocks are up and running this Friday, the last day of trade before election week here in the United States and the last trading day of the month, of course, too. We've got a soft open for the U.S. majors as investors brace for what could be days of political uncertainty and potential volatility, too, on the markets. Tech falling, too, as investors weigh a mixed bag of third quarter results. Let's call it tricks mixed in with a few treats. Alphabet reported a strong rebound in advertising revenue. Amazon, meanwhile, astounded again with a huge 37% sales spike. Meanwhile, Apple's iPhone revenues fell 21% with an almost 30% drop in Greater China. Apple issuing no guidance for the current quarter, too. Meanwhile, Twitter reported weaker than expected user growth and Facebook warned of significant uncertainty ahead. Paula Monica joins me now. Wow, that was a lot of information, Paul. So you can break it down for us. Let's hone in on Apple first. What happened in China and also with the forward guidance leaving us without information about iPhone 12? Boo. Yeah, clearly, uh, Julia, that's what investors are worried about. Apple obviously faces a lot of competition, not just in China, but around the rest of the world from a litany of smartphone makers making phones running on Android. And that's kind of like the big uh, debate, I think, in, in tech in the same way that you know people would always used to say, it's like you can either be a Beatles fan or a Rolling Stones fan. It seems like you're either an iOS fan or an Android fan. And right now, the lack of certainty about what the sales is going to be from the iPhone 12 is clearly troubling a lot of investors. And I think that's why Apple stock is down because of course the iPhone 12 has to be a hit because revenue is starting to slow a bit in that, uh, in that segment. Yeah, but I feel like for all of these tech stocks, irrespective of the earnings this quarter, they've had such a great run since the lows in March that any amount of pullback here has to be put into perspective. Facebook interested me as well. A drop in user growth in the United States and Canada, and yet ad revenues up 22% year on year. So stop hate for profit really had a big impact, not. Yeah, Facebook obviously going to remain in the crosshairs of not just investors, but everyone you know leading up to the election is going to be looking at 
the company because of you know some of the concerns about the impact in 2016 and maybe even this cycle uh, as well. And Mark Zuckerberg did talk about the fact that there's going to be a lot of uncertainty in the fourth quarter and 2021. And I think that's why Facebook stock, which also has had a tremendous run this year, cooling off a little bit today. But make no mistake, even with decline in users in uh, in the U.S., you still are seeing that ad growth that you mentioned and strong uh, subscriber growth around the world. Because, again, it's not just the Facebook platform, but Instagram and WhatsApp as well. Yeah. Great point. Paula Monica, as always, thank you so much and uh, have a good weekend. All right, there's a lot at stake for big tech in the upcoming election. A blue wave, so a, a Democratic win in Congress, could mean more regulation, while any evidence of misinformation on social media could turn public opinion once and for all. But tech might also be the solution to ensuring a free and fair vote in the future, says our next guest. He's invested $10 million in voting by smartphone, which is available to some residents of three U.S. states. Joining us now, Bradley Tusk, founder and CEO of Tusk Holdings. He's also served as Mike Bloomberg's campaign manager in the 2009 New York City mail race. Brad, great to have you on the show. Yeah, if only we had digital voting, it would solve some of the big issues and the uncertainties yeah. that we're talking about. <laughs> 21st century technology. I know. Yeah. Okay, talk to me. How concerned yeah. are you, firstly, about election security, safety of voting in this election? And then the second thing I think that's super important here is the issues that we're discussing about how long it takes to count, particularly mail-in votes. What, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, so, so the, the good news is I'm not that worried about safety and security. Um, those are things that people like to throw around a, a mm. lot when they want to intimidate people from voting. But the reality is... Uh, there are virtually no hacks of any kind in any of our elections. Uh, the, the risk is there, but the reality just, just doesn't show that. Um, so that's the good news. The bad news is we are combining a once-in-a-generation or once-in-a-century pandemic with an election that may have absolute record turnout um, with government agencies in boards of election that make the DMV seem highly competent by comparison. And so if you have... You know, incredible changes to society because of a pandemic and incredibly high turnout and government agencies that aren't used to dealing with things this way and aren't particularly competent in the first place. That's a really dangerous mix. So it is highly likely that we'll be waiting a long time to find out how we trace actually turned out. I still think, for, particularly for an international audience, they'll be confused. Even if you've got an envelope, let's say, and you save it for the day and you have to open the envelope to count the vote, you're still counting ordinarily or in the past votes that have been made on election day. Is it, yeah. is it just the fact that you've got perhaps 10, 20 percent, depending on how many more people vote this time around, that, that adds the complication? Or is it just the, the physical difference in addressing a mail-in vote versus one that would have been done on the day? It's, it's both. Look, you know, mm. there's a lot of states because of COVID with mail-in voting or early voting. And those are really good things because it, it makes it easier to vote, which is what we need in this country. But um, as a result, election officials have just more paper to count. You know, one upside of the voting machines is they tabulate the results for you, so you don't have to sit there and go through it, hand, you know, piece by piece, hand by hand. Um, and so that's the upside of it is that machines are accurate. However, um, people don't really use them. You know, in, in most elections, unlike this one in the U.S., uh, primary turnout is 10 to 20 percent, which means almost nobody bothers to vote. 
And so we generally ha- have an access problem in this country um, and a turnout problem. We won't have that this week. Um, but as a result, it's going to be overwhelming for the election officials to figure out what happened. Mm. Okay, let's turn it to uh, to tech now. In particular, it's been a pillar of the financial markets this year in providing broader support for, for the U.S. majors. You think there's an underestimated risk here for big tech if we see a democratic sweep and the risk then that they're really forceful about trying to lock down on some of the big tech firms and um, increase regulation? Yeah, I mean, I think that if you see a, a democratic White House and a democratic Senate, and, and I personally support both of those things. But if you do see that, um, you're going to see, I believe, significant new federal uh, regulation uh, on big tech, much in the way that we've already seen in Europe. So Europe has GDPR, which is a set of privacy regulations uh, for individuals around the internet. Um, And I think that you could easily see the U.S. adopt its own version of that, just like California already has. Um, Antitrust, we've already seen the Justice Department uh, about two weeks ago announced an antitrust prosecution against Google. I think it's likely that you'll see both new antitrust regulations and new prosecutions with Facebook being the you know next up uh, most likely to, to, to be uh, taken taken down by DOJ. Um, third, there's something called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And what that does is it protects a platform like Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. When someone posts something on there, the platform is not legally liable for what they write. Um, that allows people to say whatever they want. It gives these companies a lot of protection. It's allowed them to grow considerably, but it's also allowed the internet to turn into a total cesspool. Um, and so people who feel like the platforms need to do a better job monitoring content um, will say that if we repeal Section 230, it changes their incentives and we'll get a different kind of internet as a result. Mm. Um, you've seen members of both parties call for that. Both presidential candidates have said they support the repeal of Section 230. So it does seem likely... And the final thing is this, even if you get past any specific policy or bill or regulation, um, you're going to have a, a very progressive one in the Democratic Party that's newly empowered. And if you look at people who are truly in charge, Biden, Pelosi, Schumer, they need to keep that wing busy, right? They don't really want them in their business uh, on the major policy issues and decisions they have to make. So they need to give them things to keep them occupied. And telling uh, AOC or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or whoever, hey, knock yourself out with Section 230 or privacy regulations or antitrust. And it keeps them busy, keeps them happy, um, and lets the Democratic leadership focus on the things that they care about. So purely for internal political reasons also, I think the odds of there being uh, significantly higher regulation uh, are, are high. That's uh, quite a fascinating comment to make. Keep the uh, real liberals and the far left of the party perhaps busy dealing with tech and not interfering in anything else. What happens if yeah. Trump wins? What happens if there's an upset? It, then I think it's just four years of the same. I mean, Trump, right. you know, Trump behaves the way he behaves every day based on whatever his emotions are at that particular moment and nothing else. Uh, and there is no strategy beyond that, even if his staff tries. So every day for the next four years will just be however he's feeling that morning and that afternoon and that evening. And that's really it. So you can't plan for it. You can't predict it. Um, it does mean that very little will likely get done. So that may be positive from some people's perspective. Um, but you have to have enjoyed the last four years of total chaos uh, to want to see four more years. Of it. Yes. And by upsets, I should just be clear to our viewers, I mean, versus what the polls are suggesting at this stage. Bradley, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Bradley Tusk, founder and CEO of Tusk Holdings there. All right, coming up on First Move, the Biden campaign claiming it lost out on more than half a million dollars in potential donations due to Facebook. 
We'll tell you what happened next. With tens of millions of voters, any US election is a logistical challenge, as we've just been discussing, if not a nightmare. But this time, it's even more so with so many people mailing in their ballots. CNN's Pamela Brown reports. More than a third of America's registered voters have already cast their ballots. It's more sense of security when we vote in person. 28 states have received more than 50% of total ballots cast in 2016. And Florida, where more than 7 million people have voted, the Democrats' big early turnout lead has narrowed to just over 200,000. The Texas turnout is already massive, with more than 8 million votes cast so far. Early voting there is on track to eclipse its entire 2016 vote total. We want to make it as easy as it can be to make it accessible. So this location is open 24 hours. There are also new legal battles over whether late-arriving mail-in votes will be counted. In two key states, the U.S. Supreme Court has weighed in. North Carolina can count ballots up to nine days after the election if they are clearly postmarked by November 3rd. In Pennsylvania, the decision is trickier, allowing ballots received by November 6th to be counted for now, but the court made clear they could be disputed later. Pennsylvania officials announcing they will securely segregate votes by setting aside ballots that arrive after Election Day, setting up a potential nightmare legal battle if late arrival ballots end up being enough to swing the election. I know there's confusion about flying court decisions. Make a plan today to vote. Right now, do not wait. And each county has a different counting plan. Cumberland County won't begin counting mail-in ballots until Wednesday, prioritizing in-person voting. Dauphin County wants to have it all done by Tuesday night, but mail-in ballots could lag. We now believe that election night will have all the in-person voting done mm -hmm. and approximately, if everything goes well, 50,000 mail-in ballots completed. New Hampshire is already getting started as election officials there begin partially processing absentee ballots and in Minnesota, a bipartisan message from former governors urging patients, warning the count may not be complete on election night. A delay just means our system is working and that we're counting every single ballot. But no matter who wins, let's demonstrate the civility and decency that Minnesotans are known for. Pamela Brown, CNN, Washington. All right, coming up on First Move, I've got it right now. We're out on the campaign trail to find out what the Trump-Biden game plan is for the last few days before the vote. Don't go away. That's next. To first move in the final days and hours of the campaign. Joe Biden and President Trump are beefing up their travel schedules and their paths will be crossing. Both have three states on their itinerary today and both will be making stops in Wisconsin and Minnesota. Miguel Marquez is in Michigan covering the Trump campaign. Jeff Zeleny is in Des Moines in Iowa following the Bidens. Miguel, let's talk to you first. What can we expect from President Trump today? 
Well, we can expect more of the same where he has been making his closing argument uh, in states like Michigan. This is a very important state to him. It is part of that blue wall. He'll be in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota today, three Midwestern states. I want to show you what the crowd looks like. We're several hours away from the president showing up. It is very cold out. It's even been snowing a little bit. You have hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people who have come out and are already moving into this airfield here in Oakland County. Oakland County's important. It's just outside of Detroit. It's a county that Hillary Clinton won in 2016, but then the president went on to win Michigan by 10,704 votes. Uh, Joe Biden and Barack Obama will also appear in Michigan tomorrow in their first joint appearance. Uh, both campaigns working this state very hard. They, the, the Secretary of State here suspects that five million votes will be cast in this election. And before Election Day, they think that two-thirds of those votes will already be in. Uh, people we've spoken to here say that they will come out on Election Day mainly. Republicans mainly coming out on Election Day, they say, to vote for President Trump. And regardless of what the polls say, they say it will be another upset like 2016. Julia? Wow, we'll see. Can't help but to notice the lack of social distancing and the lack of masks behind you uh, there, Miguel. Different story, Jeff, clearly, in terms of the whole campaign, really, and the approach to uh, these rallies. What can we expect from uh, Joe Biden today? Well, Julia, there is a stark contrast between the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign. And just in terms of style and substance on coronavirus, and the Biden campaign is embracing that. They are trying to use that to draw a distinction that Joe Biden says he is taking the coronavirus pandemic more seriously than the Trump administration has. So Joe Biden will be here in Iowa at the Iowa State Fairgrounds during the latest in a series of drive-in rallies where people drive in in their own vehicles and stay in their vehicles, honk their horns for support, and that is the socially distanced event. But more significant, why is Joe Biden in Iowa? This is a state that President Trump carried by nine percentage points four years ago. So you may think it's not um, the place to be just three days before the election. However, this is a state that also is incredibly close. They are locked in a tight race here. Vice President Pence was here yesterday. I'm told the president is is likely to come back one more time before the election. And the reason is because it's very competitive. Now, Joe Biden was part of a winning a ticket here in 2008 and four years after on the Obama campaign. Uh, so for the vice presidential candidate, he's actually won the state of Iowa before, but it is you know, still going to be a challenge for him. But he's trying to make the case that they are looking for opportunities everywhere. If there is a blue wave next week, and that is a question that we'll have to wait and see. If there is a blue wave, he wants to uh, seize on those opportunities. And here in Iowa is one of those central places to do it. Also a key Senate race here. That's another reason Joe Biden is here. The fight for control of the Senate also happening next week. Uh, Republicans are um, certainly uh, threatened with their uh, majorities. So Senator Joni Ernst uh, is trying to hold on. She's a Republican mm. senator here. So that is why Joe Biden is starting his day here. But then he'll be going to uh, Minnesota and ending his day in important Wisconsin. So this part of the United States, this upper Midwest, so key to next Tuesday's outcome. Julia? Yeah, critical battle, battlegrounds there. Miguel, just come back in here, Miguel, because you both pointed out the stark differences. This is a COVID election, ultimately, in what we're seeing in terms of the debate, the perception, the views. Miguel, what is the president going to say about this as we again look at the people behind you and see very few masks and people bunched together? Do these people care about COVID? Yeah, let me, let me show, show them the crowd again, uh, Lionel. 
So most people are not wearing masks. We have spoken to several voters here. None. I asked many, many voters here what their number one priorities were, what their concerns were. It is more generic. It is about taking America back. It's about not being controlled by socialists. It's about the economy. Not one of them brought up the coronavirus. When you do bring it up to them, they, they discount it as a, a big factor in their lives. They do think it will go away. He has been very, the president has been very dismissive of the coronavirus. He, he hasn't uh, had a, a very focused message on that and it certainly reflects in the people who come out to see him and spend so much time waiting in these conditions just to catch a glimpse. Julia? Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Miguel, Jeff, great to have you with us. You guys are going to have a busy weekend, so uh, thank you and uh, try and get some sleep in the interim. Thank you once again. All right, the Biden campaign, angry at Facebook after thousands of ads were blocked on social media because of technical issues. His campaign says it costs them more than $500,000 in potential donations. Facebook acknowledged that, quote, technical flaws had prevented some campaigns from running some ads this week and said that both Biden and the Trump campaigns have been affected. All right, just to uh, once again bring you up to speed with what we're seeing with that breaking news from Turkey, where an earthquake has destroyed a number of buildings across three coastal cities. The 7.0 magnitude tremor struck off the Aegean coast at a relatively shallow depth, giving it therefore powerful impact. Turkey says the quake's epicenter was 17 kilometers off the coast of Izmir. These are some of the first pictures that we're seeing of the destruction in that city, Greece is also reporting damage on the island of Samos. We will continue to keep you updated, of course, on that breaking news story throughout programming. For now, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chasley. Stay safe this weekend, as always. Thank you for watching. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.